Okay, John 11. All right. Well, as we come to John 11, oh, good, we got pictures. Good, good, good. As we come to John 11, I want to discover with you how wonderfully this chapter actually fits in with John's apologetic and his purpose, okay, which is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you what? Have eternal life. That's right. So in chapter 11, we also have what writers, if you like to read and are interested in this kind of thing, we have what writers call a mini-climax in the narrative, where Jesus is going to perform one last colossal uh, miracle, where he raises a man from the dead after four days, putting his divinity on display by proving once again that he is God Almighty, right? But as you can imagine, many throughout history have cast considerable doubt on this historical event. Even today, many deny that this supernatural event could have even been possible. But for those who believe in the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh in his resurrection, when he rose again on the third day, defeating death, well, hopefully, they, or I could say we, will uh, respond with an increase in our faith this morning. That's the hope. Certainly not doubt. Certainly not contempt. That's for sure. Um, and so that's my prayer for us this morning, um, because this, this narrative is actually familiar to most of us, right? And so I'm going to take it um, in a little bit deeper way, and hopefully it will deepen your faith. But I need to set the stage for you. So before we kind of dive in, um, I want to talk about the context to this a little bit, okay? Now, after Jesus healed a man who was born blind, right, in chapter 9, he teaches about who he is. And he, he begins to do that by speaking in parables about being a good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And you'll recall that Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 8, that no one can snatch his sheep from his hand and that he and the Father are one. Now, that obvious claim of being God infuriated his enemies, right? We know that. And so we learned uh, from chapter 10 that Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he was basically making himself equal with God. And so what did his enemies do? They postured themselves to kill him, didn't they? They threatened to stone him to death. Um, and, and, you know, what happened? It wasn't his hour yet, right? And so he eluded their grasp, and he went to the other side of the Jordan with his disciples. And that's where he is when our narrative opens. He's with the disciples where John the Baptist had been at one point, And there, um, Jesus is having sweet ministry. Okay, in this area. He's having very sweet ministry because many people were coming to believe in him in this area. So that's, that is kind of the setting um, for where we're going today or for our narrative today. Um, many of you have probably heard of D.A. Uh, D. Carson. Um, he says that up until now, we have learned that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the water of life, that he is the light of life, and now today, we're going to learn that Jesus gives life itself, right? Praise the Lord. And that brings us to our first point, which is a delayed response for the glory of God. Delayed response for the glory of God. Okay. So in verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to a family that was near and dear to Jesus' heart. In fact, in verse 5, we learn that this family is somebody whom Jesus loved, and they are described as being from the village of Bethany, which is located um, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And it's about two miles, a little less than two miles from Jerusalem along the road to Jericho. Now, this particular village has not been mentioned in God, John's gospel just yet because it's different than the Bethany that's mentioned in John 1, verse 28, where John the Baptist was baptizing people across the Jordan. In fact, when Jesus received this message that Lazarus had fallen ill, he's actually located at the other Bethany. So that's kind of interesting, right? Um, and so as we kind of begin with verse 1, we learn. We learn that there's a certain man who was Lazarus who had fallen sick in Bethany. 
And it appears, and Lazarus is, is, is appearing here in John's gospel for the very first time. And so what do we know about him? He was just a normal Jewish man. He was given a common name in that culture. But other than that, we don't really know much about Lazarus, except that he had two sisters, right? Martha and Mary, who were believers. And so we assume that Lazarus, too, was a believer. Okay, that's the assumption. And that they reside together in this, city, this little village called Bethany. And according to verse 3, we found out that Lazarus is also referred to as he whom Jesus loves, meaning that he had a relationship and he had a friendship with Jesus, if you can imagine that. Um, and the verb that John chooses to use for love in verse 3 is the, the word phileo. And what that means is there is an affection here based upon an interpersonal relationship that he had with, with Lazarus. And so, in other words, John is just telling us that Jesus had love and he had affection for Lazarus as a good friend. Isn't that amazing to have that in the scriptures? Um, and that gives us um, insight into something really important. It gives us insight into Jesus' humanity, which is something we don't often think about. But what I mean by that is we know that Jesus is God, very God, as we're going to read about in his full glory and majesty. But Jesus is also man, very man. He's full in his person, and we see his sympathy and his affections on display, as well as his relationships on earth, you know, as we kind of examine these, these three people, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But other than that, we just really don't know much about Lazarus in the scripture. And one important um, note I can make is this is not the same guy that the, uh, as the one that Jesus talks about in uh, John chapter 16, or Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich and poor man. Not the same person. The only parallel with both accounts is the two central figures bear the same name. That's it, okay, in case you were wondering, in case you were wondering. But as far as Lazarus of Bethany, we don't know anything about his vocation. We don't know anything about his personality um, or anything else. He was just a normal Jewish man that lived a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. Um, And yet we learn that at some point, Jesus had befriended him um, and, um, and we also know from our text that he had fallen sick, that he had fallen ill. Or as the original language actually says, he just fell very weak. He's very weak. Now, another family member that most of us know, um, we've been introduced to before many times, is Martha, right? We know about Martha. She's actually portrayed in Scripture as very practical, very active, and very outspoken, <laughs> Uh, For example, if you've ever studied Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, when Martha welcomed Jesus into her home, um, she set out that evening to perform her normal social duties, but she became anxious, didn't she? She became anxious that Mary, the other sister, had chosen to sit at Jesus' feet rather than to help her to get this dinner going, and then she demanded that Jesus help her get, you know, tell Mary to get a clue, right? Tell Mary to get a clue and to intervene. But instead of doing that, Jesus counseled Mary, or Martha rather, that she was very anxious. And then he affirmed Mary, having chosen the better part or maybe the right thing. Um, Just as an FYI, most commentators actually believe that Martha's the eldest, that, um, that she's most likely a widow, possibly a widow, and that this house in Bethany is probably hers. But that's all extra biblical. We don't know that from the text itself. But it's interesting to think about that. Now, there's another uh, sister in this, uh, in this mention, um, and that's Mary. Um, she is often characterized as focused, worshipful, and a learner. And in this present context, John is using an interesting technique of storytelling by identifying Mary as the one who anointed the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair in verse 2, before it actually happened, right? Because we don't even see that story till the next chapter. It's so interesting. But the reason why that happened, um, or the reason why it's being told here, is because this story or this narrative had been circulating for a very long time before John wrote his gospel. Uh, Matthew and Mark had actually written about it already, 
And so he's just kind of reiterating it. Um, you know, so even though um, he has not yet given an account of it or it hasn't happened till the next chapter, what we can presuppose is that John's original audience had heard of it already. And so he is just simply retelling it as part of being a good Christian witness because unbelieving Jews were still listening to things that were being taught. And so that's kind of why that's there. But we learn about Mary, um, especially when we even think back to the Luke 10 passage, that she often took on the posture of a disciple, okay? Um, When she sat at Jesus' feet, especially in that Luke 10 narrative um, during that dinner time, And what she would do is she would sit at his feet and listen to his every word. And um, on that occasion, thinking back to Luke 10, Mary was focusing all of her attention. This is what she's modeling. All of her attention on Christ. And he was ministering to her as she was learning from him. Right? And what Christ said about Mary in Luke was that she had chosen the good part, meaning that above all other things... She is making it her aim to commune with Christ. He was her priority. She models that so well for us. Focus, worship, learner of Christ. And we're going to examine that a little bit closer next week when we get into chapter 12 because I really want to expand on that. I just love how we get to see that in women. Now, in verse 5, Jesus is noted as also loving Martha and Mary, right? But John uses a different word for love in that verse. He uses the word agapao. And what that means is that he had a very sincere appreciation and a very high regard or loving concern for these two women. And just as a side note, in a culture where women were viewed as possessions, basically, and they weren't treated very well, What's really encouraging to our hearts this morning is to realize that Jesus consistently showed love and respect for women throughout his ministry on earth, throughout. Understand that Jewish rabbis didn't teach women, you know. They wouldn't even think of doing that, but Jesus never took that position. He never took that position that women, by their very nature, um, could not be taught, Rather, um, you know, like we take Mary, for example, she sat at his feet. She's taking on the role of a disciple. He is in the position of teacher, and he's teaching her. That was radical, ladies. That's radical. And even in that setting, when she was sitting at Jesus' feet, even when Martha was admonished by Jesus in that same passage, Jesus was very quick to point out to her the priority of even her needing to learn spiritual truth, even over responsibilities that a woman would would, um, be involved in, like serving guests at a dinner. But all that to say, I just wanted to say as an aside that Jesus showed women compassion and he showed them respect in a way that they had never known. And John is really communicating that point in verse 5, right? Jesus loved Martha and Mary, it says. Not just Lazarus, but Martha and Mary as well. So I thought that would be important to point out. It was on my heart. So Martha and Mary, they're anxious because their dear brother has taken ill. The text doesn't even tell us how he became ill or why he became ill. It just says weakness or sickness, which happens all the time. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, right? Because we live in a fallen world. So they quickly sent word to Jesus right away. And when Jesus received the message, he waited two days before heading to them. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Why the delayed response? Why? Why? I mean, if you love and care so much about this family, why did you wait? (laughs) Why did you wait? And I pondered that for a while. I pondered that, and I got to thinking about other people in Scripture who had to deal with delayed responses. And all of them, by the way, put in Scripture as an example for us so that we might have hope for sure. But you know who I thought of? I thought of Abraham and Sarah. I thought of them childless until they were 190, and Sarah was 90. What was God's purpose in delaying um, their prayerful response, or what was the purpose in his delayed response? Well, Genesis 17, verse 19 tells us that the purpose was so that God would get the glory 
in keeping his covenant promise and making Israel a great and mighty nation and that his people would glorify God by keeping the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice. So I thought about them, and then I thought about Joseph. Wow, what a great example of someone who experienced a delayed response in Scripture. Do you remember studying him last year in the Pentateuch, right? You got to study him in Genesis. He was sold into slavery and eventually sent to prison in Egypt very unjustly and had to remain there for over two years before he was released and elevated. So ultimately, um, God's delayed response brought Jacob's entire family to Egypt to save their lives and to lay the groundwork for the great deliverance and, and exodus some 400 years later. But Joseph actually reveals the ultimate purpose in Genesis 50, verse 20, when he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to, to preserve many people alive. But what about the believer today? Does God have a purpose with our delayed responses? What do you think? He does, doesn't he? God reminds the believer in Romans eight twenty eight to 29 that God causes all things to work together for good for those who what? Love God to those who are called according to his purpose to become conformed to the image of his son. That's a reminder to the believer that God hasn't abandoned you as you wait upon him. Rather, he is continually at work in you, Christ one, in Christ one. So the believer can be comforted in knowing that the ultimate purpose and delayed responses are for our sanctification. As God conforms the believer into the image of Christ, moment by moment, Day by day, year by year, as you're thereby increasing your faith as you learn to trust him. That's sanctification. And you know what? It's no different for Martha and Mary. No different. Jesus delayed his visit. Delaying his visit doesn't mean that he's indifferent or that he is callous towards his friends who were suffering. Far from it, really. Rather, God's good will come in his delayed response. For one, it's going to be a strengthening of faith for this family. And two, it's going to mean salvation for those who get to witness this incredible miracle. But ultimately, Jesus gives us insight into God's purpose, doesn't he? It's going to be for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So yes, at first read, this decision Jesus made to delay his visit Maybe a little bit puzzling, but as we were going to soon discovery, discover, this is a death like no other. This is a death to the glory of God. Not in the sense that God will be praised in the raising of Lazarus, but in the sense that it provides opportunity for God in revealing his glory to honor the Son, as John has already spoken about in John 5, 22 to 23. So... We understand from verses 1 to 6 that Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. And he must have heard about that via some kind of messenger, which presupposes, by the way, that Lazarus was probably still alive at that time. But after he heard, he stayed two more days before heading to the village of Martha and Mary. And then in verse 7, Jesus announces, let us go back to Judea again, helping the reader to understand, actually, that Lazarus has now died, bringing us to our next point, which is dealing with doubt, right? What can I say? The best way to describe the disciples' response in verse 8 to Jesus going back to Judea was utter shock. Utter shock. What? You want to go back to Judea? Don't you remember when we were just there and you almost were stoned by, the, by our enemies? I mean, why would you want to leave such sweet ministry? Why? Why would you want to leave these people who are believing in you right now? Why would you want to put your life at risk again? You know, you can just imagine some of the things they're thinking, right? But in response to their dismay, Jesus gives the disciples kind of a little sermonette in verses 9 to 10. That's what I call it. And it, what it ends up doing is it exposes their heart of fear. 
In biblical counseling, we call this inducement, where we bring the word of God to bear on a particular situation involving sin, and the hope is that it will motivate the counselee to repent of their sinful attitudes, their words and actions, and then make a decisive commitment to trust and obey the Lord. He's doing the same thing. It's so interesting. Of course, we're learning from him, right? So he teaches us. But in, in verses 9 to 10, it says, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the city, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is doing a couple of things here. First, he's just drawing from the cultural context. Um, Back then, Romans and Jews, they divided their days into 12-hour days. And during the day, one would work. One would travel, um, but when it was dark, they would immediately cease doing all of that because with darkness comes trouble, right? Darkness comes trouble. But because Jesus is God and he knows the heart 100%, he's also helping his disciples to understand a deeper spiritual truth. And some of it they've actually heard already back in chapter 5 when Jesus says he is the light, right? He is the light, and the light enables us to see. Thus, those who have the light are not in danger of stumbling. So what is the application? What is he trying to say to the disciples? Well, disciples, you need to deal with your darkness, which in this case was their fear. In other words, you need to deal with your fear of the future by relying upon, trusting in, and obeying the light. Matthew, uh, Matthew says it a different way in chapter 10, verse 26. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body to hell. Well, after he gave them biblical counsel, and they're still pretty dismayed, <laughs> Jesus says plainly to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I'm going to go wake him up. And it's no accident that Jesus uh, phrases it that way. He's actually continuing to help the disciples to understand that he alone is the resurrection and the life. He's still going that direction. Jesus um, is actually using the common word for death, which is kema. But the disciples still don't have eyes to see. Their fear is really still blinding them, and they're continuing to plead with Jesus not to be hasty. You know, don't go back, not to be hasty. I mean, sick people usually get better, right? You know, they're kind of going down that, that, that road. But in bold response, Jesus finally says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And here, he's actually using a more common term, a a different term uh, for death. Um, He's being a little bit more insistent. And then he adds in verse 15, and I am glad or I rejoice for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, you got to see my cute little grandson, Noah, up there on the slide. Uh, My grandson is two years old, and he loves trains. He loves trains. He plays and talks about them constantly, okay? But before that love of trains became a thing in his life, uh, Sean and I would take him to Travel Town. I'm sure you've been there before he was even two, where I believe his love of trains began, And at this park, there's a little train, you know, that goes around the park, goes round and round in one big circle, and of course, you can ride in it. And so Sean and I could not wait to take Noah on this train. We were very excited. But when I asked him if he wanted to go on the little train with us on that first visit, he quickly replied, no, Mimi, too scowy, too scowy. (laughs) To which I responded, Noah boy, me and Papa are so excited for you. Because we know that you are really going to love riding on that train. And so don't be afraid. Just trust us. We got you. We got you. And so we stood in line, and we're still talking him through it, you know. And although he didn't really appreciate our efforts at first, because he was scared, you can imagine. 
Once he sat in that train with us and it got going, Noah was hooked. He was hooked. And now he had eyes to see. And he realized that he didn't need to fear the future of riding on that train. He just needed to trust Mimi and Papa. In his own little way, he doubted us at first, but once again, he, but once he got on and rode that train with us, his trust and his faith grew, and that was a big milestone for Noah that day. And we as grandparents had such great joy because we were able to help him overcome his fear. It was such a great um, just learning time. And similarly, if Jesus had come sooner when he had heard Lazarus had fallen ill, it's presumed that he probably would have prevented Lazarus from dying, just somebody he loved, right? But in God's greater plan and purpose and for the good of the disciples, Jesus is just providing an opportunity for their faith and their trust to increase. And he was overjoyed for them, overjoyed. Because, the, you know, just because of all that they're going to learn, but because the disciples don't know the future yet, and they don't even know what Jesus has in mind at this point, they're still struggling, which I think was made clear in Thomas's response, by the way, <laughs> in verse 16, which you can't help but say in an Eeyore voice, let us go then so that we might die with him. <laughs> you know, so you can tell they're still struggling a little bit. Poor Thomas. Right. I I think we're always going to associate Thomas with being a doubter. But within his response, I hope that you at least observed um, that there's also courage and devotion there. You know, there's a doubting Thomas, but there's courage. Even though he and the others didn't get the whole picture, they certainly didn't grasp what he was even talking about in verses 9 to 10, it seems. It's just amazing to realize that Thomas may have spoke better than he knew. And what I mean by that is his response actually points towards would-be disciples of Christ. And it's something we're going to learn a little bit more next week. When we come across a group of people, um, there were some Greeks that were in Jerusalem during the Passover, and they wanted to see Jesus. And um, he responded in an interesting kind of way. He, in chapter 12, he said, um, in order to follow him, one must lose their life, right? In the sense that we must count the cost, especially in a world that increasingly hates us for being devoted followers. And so that's something we'll expand on more. But as we kind of go on through the text, we know that off the disciples went with Jesus to Bethany, to the village of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And by the time they arrived... According to verse 17, four days have elapsed between his death and resurrection, which kind of makes sense because it's approximately 93 miles from where Jesus was to uh, Bethany near Jerusalem. It's at least a four-day journey and for any healthy person. You know, if you're in good shape, whatever, you could make it in four days. And when they arrived, we learn that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days, bringing us to point number three, which is digging into the heart of unbelief. Now, one of my favorite novels of all time is A Christmas Carol. Dickens opens his first chapter with these infamous words, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk and the undertaker, and the chief mourner, Old Molly was dead as a doornail. You ever read that book? It's my favorite. Now, the same was true for Lazarus. No matter if you lived in 80 AD when this gospel was probably written or in 2023, all people die eventually, right? And they go through the same stages of human decomposition after death. I mean, first, the body begins to eat itself from the inside out. There's no blood circulation. We know this. And rigor mortis sets in, right? Then the body begins to bloat, it produces gases, active decay sets in, and the organs and muscles kind of break down until you kind of finally reach this skeletonization stage where the, just the flesh dissipates over time and you end up with just your bones. And so Lazarus being dead four days in this tomb, he's like at stage two. His body should be pretty bloated at this point. <laughs> 
um, and, and discolored even. And that's what happens within three to five days of somebody dying. And that is, how he would phrase that is, that is an, a common um, experience for all people, you know? It's just common. But in our culture in America, you've got to take your Western mindset and put it at the door when you come to the text, right? Because in our culture in America, we embalm people, right? We flush the body uh, when a person dies of, of fluids, and we re- replace it with a solution. Why? So that you can come and say goodbye, right? When you get to come and see somebody in that particular way, it's just what we do. But they didn't do that in Jewish culture. That wasn't anything in keeping with what they did. They dealt with death in a different kind of way. They would wrap the body like a mummy, just think of a mummy, wrapped up nice and tight, and then they would sprinkle spices on uh, the body and to help what? Stop the horrendous smell. (laughs) I mean, it's just very practical, We get a very clear understanding of this in Luke 23, verses 50 to 56, after Jesus has died. But that's just how the culture dealt with death um, of their loved ones. And so at this juncture, everybody that was there at the tomb knew that Lazarus was dead. As Dickens says, he was dead as a doornail, okay, (laughs) just to emphasize that. Um, And because of this fact, we are told in verse 19 that many were there to console Martha and Mary. Again, we get to see a cultural difference uh, somewhat. Um, But when these mourners heard that Lazarus had fallen ill and died, of course, they they headed to Bethany from Jerusalem. And they came, um, and many think that because so many came, that maybe Martha, Mary, and Lazarus was a very prominent family. And we'll kind of see that in John 12 because of the, the... perfume that she used was very costly, Mary. But culturally speaking, mourners would have come in the droves, and they would have stayed at your house for seven days. (laughs) You know, but the whole point was they wanted to sit with you in your house, and they wanted to grieve with you. You know, they wanted to weep with those who weep, right? And that's that was kind of the setting there. And so during this week of mourning, Martha had heard that Jesus was outside of Bethany, and we know that she went to meet him. And when she arrived, she told Jesus that she believed that Lazarus would not have died if he had, if he had been there. And, you know, when you look at the original language, just understand she's not really being accusatory um, at that point because she uses the title Lord in verse 21 to address Jesus. And so I think it actually helps us to understand better that she simply... Um, She's simply speaking words of grief. And then, as you continue, uh, she exhibits her faith in verse 22 by just stating to him, whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. So you do see some just an incredible uh, uh, just faith there. And then Jesus then responds to Martha by saying, your brother will rise. So on the one hand, Jesus is providing solace to a friend in Jewish culture Most likely, Martha had a Pharisaic-like theology concerning the future. Her belief and understanding at that time was that Lazarus would be resurrected and that he would be restored to bodily life in in the last days. And you can read about that. I think it was in our lesson, wasn't it? You got to read through Job and Daniel. And you get a hint of it also in Acts 23, verse 8. But on the other hand, because we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, Jesus is also promising to raise Lazarus right now, (laughs) okay? But given Martha's response in verse 24, it appears she's still focused on the popular theology of her day, which was that Lazarus is in Sheol, right? And he's just awaiting resurrection on the last day. That was Martha's eschatology. That was her view of end times. So it's important to kind of put yourself in her shoes. But Jesus quickly reminds her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. That phrase, I am, that is ergo imi. It's what theologians call a tetragrammaton or the name of God. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is claiming to be the source of both. So, for example, when he says, I am the resurrection, he means he possesses the power 
to resurrect anyone from the dead so that anyone who believes in his finished work, although they may die someday, will experience the power of the resurrection in their own physical bodies. It's something that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 that you can read about it on your own, 20 to 22. But Jesus doesn't just mean future. He also is referring to enjoying a resurrected life now, this side of heaven. He goes on to say in verse 26, and anyone who lives and believes in me now will never die ever, right? It's like saying, if you believe with your whole heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, past, present, and future, and that he rose again on the third day, you will be given eternal life and you will live forever eternally. So exciting to hear that. He shares the same truth in John 8, verse 51, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, ever. Someday, you and I will die physically, and we will experience those four stages of death, you know? But our souls, the inner man, the real you, control center, as we say, will live on forever, So there's really a tension here as we contemplate this future bodily resurrection that will happen when Christ comes back and when we're going to be in the presence of God and then living as an in Christ one, this side of heaven, in the power of the resurrection. This is interesting. Now, Jesus also says to Martha, I am the life. So what does he mean there? Well, he means that those who experience resurrection will also experience eternal life, which ties back to John's goal for every reader of his gospel, that by believing in him, you will have eternal life and you will never die because Jesus is life itself. In fact, he is everlasting life. Amen? So by saying, I am the resurrection and the life, out of love and compassion for Martha, What he is doing there is he is teaching her to go beyond. Martha, go beyond your abstract understanding of what takes place on the last day, your eschatology or your theology, to a personal belief in him who alone provides resurrection and life. The bottom line is this. There simply is no resurrection or eternal life outside of Christ. So it begs the question, do you believe this truth? Do you believe it? Yes. Do we believe by faith that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah who came down from heaven, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Do we believe that he is actually Lord? The answers to those important questions carry eternal significance, doesn't it? And when Jesus asked Martha that very same thing, do you believe we sense that her response in verse 27 is one of faith. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she says, I believe, it's in the perfect tense, and it reflects a confident trust. So it does appear, at least through her words, that her response is one of faith. In fact, it seems to be a mixture of personal trust and confidence that Jesus truly is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he had divinely descended as the Son of God, which truly was fulfillment of the Jewish expectation that he would come into the world. And, and you know, Martha just had a very good theology. She got it because she was in the Scriptures. She got it. And her words reveal that. And so with that in mind, with that proclamation of faith, what does she do? She goes to find Mary. She goes back to the house. She runs off to the house, and she says, Mary, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And so what does Mary do? She goes quickly, doesn't she? She goes quickly to see Jesus outside of the city where the tomb was. And, of course, the mourners took note of this. They thought she was going to the tomb, so they followed her. So she's got this whole entourage following her, um, just showing her their support more than likely. But instead of going to the tomb, she goes to Jesus and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Almost the same thing Martha said, right? And basically, the picture that John's trying to give us is Mary has overwhelming emotion. The original language seems to indicate that she was crying out to Jesus in a very helpless way. And I think... What John's trying to help us to understand here is that we all 
just respond to death differently. We do. Uh, Two years ago, my baby brother died unexpectedly. And my response to his death was a little bit more restrained than Mary. I'm the oldest in my family um, and probably identify a little bit more with Martha, you know. But my surviving sibling was overcome with emotion. Now, no doubt, both of us love our brother very deeply. We were grieved over his dying, but both of us responded very differently. And John is just trying to help the reader to understand that loss is just very hard. As we observe Mary here, very sad and, and just kind of having just a lot of emotion. Um, the word for weeping in verse 33 means to, to weep bitterly. It's kind of like lament. Um, and so, you know, her weeping in that state, coupled with these mourners that were very loud and they're crying and carrying on, um, it impacted Christ. It impacted him. And so much so that verse 33 tells us that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And I know most of us think that because of the way the English translations read that Jesus' response was just one of empathy solely. But while it's true uh, that, that being moved in the spirit can mean empathy, it can also mean to be angry. It can mean that. And in essence, really what John is communicating here is that inwardly, in himself, Jesus felt inner pain and turmoil. Indeed, there's sorrow and there's sadness over the death of a friend and what it does to those left behind. But there can also be anger because of the suffering, sickness, and death that it can bring, right? And so even Pastor John says that every emotion at this point is just gripping Jesus in his spirit, in his inner person, his person, and he was troubled within himself. You know, he let himself feel everything. And I think we get that. We get that kind of sorrow and the sadness over a friend's death. But indignation, that's another one to kind of think through. Why? Was it because they were forcing a miracle upon Jesus? Was it because he felt the mourners that were present were hypocrites? Is it maybe anger over just sin, sickness, and death because we live in a fallen world? Is it unbelief? You know, what is it? Why? And so, you know, as I studied further, I just landed on this idea that Jesus felt righteous indignation over sin, sickness, and death, and unbelief. I can identify with that. I think you can too, because when my little brother, when my baby brother died, although I was grieved, I was deeply troubled in my spirit because it reminded me that death is possible, this side of heaven. And I was also troubled because he died without Christ. Right? That's even the sadder part. Even after much pleading, it isn't meant to be that way. It's not meant to be that way. But because of one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners and death entered the world. But praise be to God, by one man's obedience, that is Christ, many will be made righteous. I find hope in that. Do you? Absolutely. That is the message that Jesus taught throughout the Gospels. He preached repentance and even pronounced woes on the hypocrites of his day. But at the same time, he lamented over those who were lost without a shepherd. And it's a strange tension that we live in. On the one hand, we can have righteous indignation over sin, sickness, and death, while at the same time, we can have compassion and empathy for the lost and the suffering. So if sickness and death incited righteous indignation in Christ, then surely unbelief is included. Because in this context before us, we have lots of mourners who are just wailing loudly. They're just carrying on. And John does use the same word for weeping that he did for Mary. But these, but for the mourners here, it means something different. It means to weep or wail with emphasis on the noise. It was like really loud, you know. And you just kind of get the sense that they're being supportive of Martha and Mary in their weeping over their loss, but this grief is seemingly without hope, quite frankly. Yet we know, because we have the whole counsel of God, and Scripture is so clear that believers are not to grieve without hope. Rather, we look forward to a better hope that's yet to come, right? That's right. So Jesus, who is the Son of God, is also in his humanity sympathizing with those around him. He is sad because he's lost his friend whom he loves. And so he, we have the shortest verse in the Bible, he wept 
And when we saw, and when he saw the tomb where his friend laid, and the word that John uses for wept in verse 35 is actually different than what was said before. It just means to shed tears or to just to cry. And Jesus wept for Lazarus, but in a big picture kind of way, his sadness is really directed towards sin, sickness, and death and unbelief. And that prompted his righteous indignation. And while Jesus wept, he is interrupted by two responses in the crowd. We learned that some were taken aback by how much he loved Lazarus, while others reflected on that time that he had healed the man that was born blind, and they wondered, why didn't he prevent this death? (laughs) Right? I think that's just normal human response. Would you agree? (laughs) It it just is. There's no sneering going on in the crowd. That's not how you should take that. I think there's just massive unbelief and total confusion about what's going on. And so their unbelief incites Jesus further, and he said to those around him at the tomb, take away the stone. (laughs) Take it away. Martha reminds me so much of Peter. You know, a bit impulsive, coupled with a tendency to get pretty worked up at times. And you see this, this attitude displayed in verses 38 to 39. When Jesus commands that the stone be taken away, what does Martha do? She objects. She objects and tries to take charge, basically. But what does Jesus do? He counters her unbelief with a rhetorical question. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that? In other words, Martha, 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 your job in this moment is just to believe. You have already confessed that you believe that I am Jesus the Messiah, the resurrection and the life. So trust in me, even in the face of death here. And so on that note, we assume Martha took it to heart because he took away the stone. So she must have taken that to heart. And then Jesus lifts his eyes and prays to the Father. We see this beautiful prayer Uh, Verses 41 to 42 is an example of faith and trust. He addresses God as Father, which is just so characteristic of how Jesus prayed. Then he expresses gratitude to the Father um, for already hearing him, asked for Lazarus' life, which assumes that the raising of Lazarus was already determined. We also see him praying publicly, just displaying his intimate relationship that he has with the Father revealing that Jesus did nothing of himself. Rather, he was completely dependent upon the Father and obedient to his will and hoping that the hearers that day would believe that he was sent by God himself. And with that beautiful prayer in mind, the mini climax is about to unfold when Jesus says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he did. And he did. What a sight that must have been. Understand, do you have the picture up there? Understand that um, Lazarus' body would have been bound like that completely. So he would have hopped, he would have shuffled, he wouldn't have walked. Hence, you've got that second command in verse 44 that says, unbind him and let him go. Okay? There are similarities to the death and resurrection of Jesus himself to Lazarus. In fact, Lazarus' resurrection is really meant to point the reader towards Jesus' own resurrection. But there's so many important differences here as well. First, Lazarus was only raised to mortal life. But when Jesus was raised on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 tells us uh, that it was to a spiritual body. Right? In essence, Jesus left the grave clothes behind and he appeared to his disciples and 500 others we learn about in the book of Acts. Second, in time, Lazarus would eventually die again. So physically speaking, um, physically speaking, but when Jesus was raised on the third day, it was with the power of endless life, right? In fact, he is in heaven right now, ladies, in his resurrected body, bearing the marks of his wounds. And you know what he's doing? He's interceding for you. Isn't that encouraging? Thirdly, when Jesus does come back with the sound of the trumpet... Those who hear his in Christ ones will be caught up with him and will always be with the Lord, including Lazarus. Such encouragement to our hearts. So the mini climax of raising a dead man to life after four days is incredible. But the ultimate climax in God's redemptive history is Jesus defeating death, 
resurrecting on the third day and someday coming back, and those who hear him will participate in resurrection, like those who believed in him on this day. So praise the Lord for that. Well, then let's, let's kind of bring this home. should be no surprise to you that many were threatened by what just happened, okay? There were some in the crowd that saw Lazarus being raised from the dead, and they went and told the chief priests. They went and told on him, in a sense. And what did the leaders do? They began to fear their place in society, the loss of it. They argued back and forth about what to do. And then finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, interjected and gave his callous opinion in verses 49 to 50 when he says, you know nothing, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Now, there's a double meaning in what's being spoken of here. First, Caiaphas meant that Jesus would need to die as a sacrifice or the, or the Jewish nation would, would die. It's, it's either or, bottom line. That's where he's coming from. And that's truly spoken from a heart that is driven by fear, losing their place in the world and losing you know, their reputation to the Romans and all of that. But on the other hand, John is trying to help the reader think of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so although these men of Israel saw mighty works and signs that God did through Christ, they still accepted advice of Caiaphas, and they crucified our Lord, or they will in just a short time. But ultimately, because we know the end of the story and we have God's revealed word here, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And praise be to God, he raised him up on the third day, just like he said he would, loosing the pangs of death, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And so as we leave John 11, may we have this truth in mind that we may know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord And Christ, he indeed is the resurrection and the life. And so there can only be two responses. For those who do not believe, like Logan said, I beg you, you need to repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You need to believe that Jesus indeed died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. I want to be caught up in the air with you to meet the Lord. So I beg you to repent. For those of you that know Jesus as Lord, I pray that your faith was deepened this morning as you strive, continue to strive for holiness while you abide in your Savior. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word, which gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And in particular, Lord, I am so thankful for John chapter 11, and just the great reminder that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. May we never doubt that, but may we be strengthened in the inner man by it, and may we also encourage one another in our groups this morning. Father, I pray that you were glorified in all that was said today, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.